the way I think people are not only going to survive but flourish is the future of thinking and thinking differently than we're probably thinking right now and really starting to think at a level of useful belief and starting to think at a level of um, what's the stuff that matters and what's the stuff that is just noise? What's the stuff that counts and what's the stuff that is literally holding us back that we're paying attention to? Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers, experts in influence, people who live just behind the curtain of an insanely interesting world of influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. In this episode, we are diving into the world of inner influence, chatting to a true master of the word influence, Chris Helder. Chris is one of the world's most sought-after keynote speakers, and he is the author of three best-selling books, The Ultimate Book of Influence, which has been published in five languages now, Useful Belief, which went on to be the highest-selling Australian business book of all time, and Cut Through the Noise, which, speaking directly to the parents amongst you, is about achieving better results with less guilt. Now, for anyone who has seen Chris speak, and if you haven't, YouTube is a feast of videos, you'll know that his energy as a storyteller is another level. In fact, I I often show videos of Chris speaking at the times when I'm asked to teach presentation skills. And I do that because he's one of the best examples I know of deliberately setting your internal state to not only harness and amplify your energy, so choosing to have energy, but also using body language to switch on every single one of the senses of an audience. And that is an incredible skill to both learn and also witness in action. And the very first time I saw Chris on stage, I had been asked to to go and check him out. And it was a rainy Sunday morning and it takes a lot to get me out of bed on a rainy Sunday morning and this was no different. And I remember walking into that room and there was a sea of very hungover insurance agents, as I remember. And I remember having the thought that that these guys don't need a speaker. These these guys need a miracle. Now, you know, I'm not going to go so far as to call Chris a miracle, but what he did that morning was nothing short of miraculous and, and so kicked off so kicked off a working relationship of over a decade. And during that time, I've watched Chris break down the art of influence hundreds and hundreds of times for hundreds of thousands of people. And then there was this period of time where as both our lives evolved and changed, we, we didn't speak to each other for a while. We... we we were kind of out of the loop with each other. And at least from the outside, that period of time seemed to coincide with a time for him of deep introspection. And when we did next speak, he put something to me, something he had been thinking a lot about, that he felt sat at the absolute root of our ability to influence at every level. And it blew my mind. Now, ever since I have known him, Chris has had a saying, The most important words we say all day are the words we say to ourselves 
about ourselves when we are alone by ourselves. Which raises an interesting question. If that's true, then why doesn't positive thinking work? And it's that question that rolled over and over, I believe, in Chris's mind during that period of time. And the place that he reached after a career of driving change in that area is that positive thinking in and of itself doesn't work. What we need and what is way more important than that is useful beliefs. And the key here is the word useful. You know, some things in life are not positive. Sometimes in life are not positive. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Um, sometimes horrific circumstances come without any prior warning and no amount of positive thinking is going to change that. The truth is that facts alone aren't helpful. Trying to change the facts in your head, it is not helpful. And I know that that sounds annoying, especially if you're trying to navigate yourself through uncertainty, but it's worth the time and at least the next hour to really think about it. The difference between positive thinking and having a useful belief, because once you know the truth, once you have all the facts, they're almost irrelevant. The only thing that makes a difference after that point, the only thing that stands between you and a clear strategy or overwhelm is the story you choose to tell yourself about that situation and whether it's useful or not. I managed to I managed to catch Chris in a rare quiet, a rare quiet moment backstage at an event that I was at recently and we had a choice between ducking into a room and having this conversation or having some food and, and enjoying lunch so please ignore the rumbling stomachs that are probably in the background here but I think it was pretty worth it some of the areas we dove into are the future of thinking in the next economy how we manage fear and move through guilt with ease. And again, how having a useful belief is at the core of that. The power of accelerated focus. The reticular activating system. Sounds geeky. You know I love geeky. But why you need to know what this is or at least have a working frame of reference when it comes to developing useful beliefs. How you break through unhelpful mental loops. And that's one that I am very guilty of getting stuck in. And how to gain clarity through time travel. And it's, this is not the kind that requires, you know, Marty McFly and a DeLorean. So this podcast is, this is for anyone ready to look at their beliefs around change, around influence, around being stuck and getting unstuck. And ultimately our ability to master our state and get clear in any given moment. It's uh, a special conversation with someone who has been in my world for a very long time and who it has been an absolute privilege to watch evolve and study some of these questions. And it's that level of mastery that I hope you get a glimpse into today. So please sit back, stand back, stand up, walk fast, walk slow, and enjoy my conversation with the powerhouse that is... Chris Helder. Welcome to the podcast, Chris Helder. Ho ho. Ho ho. 
<laughs> it is good to be here. Well, I mean, we've obviously, we've known each other for for a very long time. Very long time. Like 10 years or more. And so it's been really fascinating. We're going to we're going to talk about some of the things that you you represent at the moment, some of the ideas that you're obsessing about at the moment. But I've watched your journey all the way through, and it's been it's just been an honour a eh, to watch it, but also see it evolve. And before we get into any of that, I'm already I'm like chomping at the bit to get into it. But before we get into any of that, I always kick off with one question, so I'm going to kick off the same, and that is whether you consider yourself to be an introvert. Or an extrovert, and anyone that's seen you speak or knows you might laugh at that question, but I think it's probably going to be a different answer than most people would assume. You know, it's an interesting question. I, I think everyone that has ever met me, Julie, would probably assume that the, the answer is extrovert. And, and the extrovert qualities that I have um, is that obviously I get a chance to speak in front of audiences, and, and, and that gives me energy. Um, there are people that when they speak in front of an audience and they turn around and they have to go have a nap because uh, they're exhausted and it drains them. It, that's not true of me. There's the extrovert quality that I think it gives me energy and I enjoy that interaction. But I spend a lot of time alone and, and that extrovert piece, uh, um, you know, is, is out there on stage. But I'm, I think I'm very introverted in a very in a different way. I think that would surprise, again, anybody that knows you, who sees you, who sees you on the stage. I mean, you are like, you're like rocket fuel to see you on the stage. I mean, you're always up first on any conference program just simply because you, you're like an injection of energy. Yet, you know, when, when you leave, often you do come down a number, a number of notches, which tells me two things. One is that, and we'll get onto this in a little while, that you believe that energy is a decision and you actually have developed the capacity to decide that I'm going to have massive amounts of energy in this yes. moment and also that you've not only developed the de- the ability to decide but you've found a way to call it in to create it so just very quickly talk about that because I'm i think trying. it's a useful tool <laughs> now look i think the 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 introvert side is is very much about um I'm, i do a lot of dinner for one uh on the road i do a lot of uh uh you know i have a lot of time in hotels a lot of time on planes a lot of time in airplane lounges and i think you know, um, it is important to just recharge. And, you know, I think when you put yourself out there, you're vulnerable. And I think for me, sometimes that the introvert period rationalizes the extrovert period and that, you know, you're putting yourself out there and you're talking and you're sharing. And then, you know, I think that introvert period really is, is, is a nice period to just recharge and, and settle and accept um, accept all the vulnerability that you just put out there and, and uh, I don't know, rationalize it a little bit. So what's that moment? That moment you come in, I mean, I, I've just seen you this. We're actually at an event at the moment, by the way. We've snuck into a room at the back to do this interview. So, I mean, I saw you this, moment, this morning. We met in the hotel lobby. You were, I wouldn't say quiet, but you were certainly a steady energy. Yeah. And then we get here and you disappear. Yeah. And I would say you disappear having known you for a while you disappear for at least five minutes yeah and then you come back and you're on what do you do in those five minutes because I've never followed you (laughs) or asked yeah you know I think you know I'm a big believer that energy is a decision so my process for going and and creating that energy within myself um, actually does strive from a little bit of gratitude to start with combined with uh, combined with 
knowing why I'm about to do what I'm going to do. Um, and it really is a process of me. And this is sort of a funny thing, but for me, it's, it's going through and going, I'm so lucky to be able to do what I do. I absolutely love this. I want to go out there and maximize the impact that we're going to have for these people. And then I always do this funny thing, which is silly, but there's always like an event manager there or somebody's there as you're about to go on stage, somebody that's got a headset on and you know, you're about to walk on and I always just try to get the most panicked look I can possibly have in my face and just look at them and go, do you have any idea what I should talk about? And, and like literally there's 30 seconds and it's just fun for me to watch their face as they go. Uh, and most people, most people laugh. They get that it's a joke. <laughs> and every now and again, I'll have one to go, uh, maybe talk about, um, uh, maybe talk about mindset, maybe talk about, uh, and they'll try to solve it for me as though I'm about to speak for an hour. But the, the bottom line is it actually calms me because it's just this little giggle that we have. And I know it's silly, but for me, it really is that combination. It's, it's really reminding myself that, um, you know, a little bit of gratitude with a reminder about what we're about to do and then a little laugh. And, uh, you know, it's not the end of the world. We're just going to go out there and, and do the best we can. And, and I think then you go out there and, and deliver that. And I think it is, you know, it is a vulnerable process. And, and I think you can, you have to make sure you separate it out because, you know, I just have a, I can't get injured out there. That's my, my big thing, you know, cause it's, it's easy to get injured out there. It's easy to have your self esteem and your self image and your self worth. And, and, uh, I'm not saying there's none of that in there, but it's really easy to have a lot of that dialed into there. And I think it's trying to find that balance and then coming off the back of it, knowing, look, there were some things out of my control. There were things within my control. But the one thing, Julie, I'm absolutely passionate about right now is there's only one thing that we can all control, and that's our output. And what we put out there is what we can control. And things are going to go wrong. Um, the audience might be different than what I thought, or the setup might be different, or the microphone might not work exactly right. But at the end of the day, you know, that's what we control. So concentrating on that, getting myself in a space where the energy and the output is there. I love, there is a reframe in there around, and I was talking to Mark Shulman recently, who is the drummer for Pink. Yeah. And he said a similar thing before he gets out on stage. He said he, he reframes from, which is what our brain naturally does, you know, I have to do this. And as soon as you think I have to do this, the panic sets in, the anxiety comes up. Sure. I have no choices. He reframes I have to do this from I get to do this. There I you go. I get to do this. And what she was saying, Same gratitude time. for the opportunity. Yeah. I get to do this today. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And, and it is amazing. I, Julie, you know, I mean, uh, 17 years I've been in front of audiences now and I, I, I can't believe it. It's, um, I feel so blessed to be able to do it and, and to be able to share ideas because it's um, what I'm passionate about. So I want to segue from here into, you've always been fascinated with, with how we communicate with other people. Yeah. You wrote the book, the, the Ultimate Book of Influence. Anybody check it out. We're not going to focus hard on that today there's some amazing tools in there but we're gonna we're gonna go into a different area so you went from how we communicate with other people to becoming fascinated about how we communicate with ourselves yeah. on a daily basis but it all started it all started back when you were a teacher <laughs> well you, you could go back there for sure um I I finished up university and um I was actually dating this girl at the time who um, wanted to save the world. And um, I say that, you know, she wanted to do this program that was called Teach for America. And it was a, a program, f it wasn't designed for people to be teachers. It was designed for 
this in in some of the impoverished areas in the United States, they can't get teachers to go in there. So it was a program designed for them to take top college graduates, university graduates, and, and put them in a situation for two years. In exchange, uh, Bill Clinton would pay off your school fees, which uh, was uh, a good school loans, which was great. Um, and it was actually funny because we, I mean, we literally were both going to go to New York City and do that. Anyway, as it turns out, she got Houston, I got L.A. And one thing led to another. The next thing you know, I ended up in L.A. And I was supposed to teach high school. In fact, um, at the time, I was coaching high school football in America. And my plan was to be a high school football coach. So that's what I wanted to be. And then a college coach. And uh, who knows, maybe I'd be the uh, coach of the Chicago Bears today if I had stayed. But sliding door moments are amazing. And um, anyway, one thing turned into another and they didn't give me high school kids. They gave me second graders. And next thing I know, I had year two. I had 37 year two kids and I had to teach them for two years. And um, I had no idea how big a year two kid was, Julie. I had no, <laughs> it was an amazing experience. Um, and I got there, I had, um, I had nine, I had nine math books. I had, um, I think I had seven readers. I had two boxes of crayons. I spent every cent I had on school supplies. And to your point of I have to do this, I had a reality and it was really a survival situation where my useful belief at the time, even though I hadn't called it that at the time, it was very much about what do I need to do to get through this? And it was some of the most incredible moments um, of, of old. In that, this was in Compton, right? In Compton, California. In a, in a difficult, at that point in time, a very difficult area. Mid-90s in Compton was a very dangerous, very, um, um, it was a difficult, difficult area and uh, had some incredible experiences and, you know, just... Um, you know, uh, I remember uh, I had 37 kids and 10 of them had been to the beach and the beach was like 20 kilometers away. And one of the first things I did is I got this, uh, I went down, this is back before you needed permission slips. I just went down and uh, signed off a bus and uh, organized a field trip down to the beach. And uh, I'll never forget the smartest girl in my class, Mercedes. And um, she stood at the beach and she looked out at the water and she said, it's absolutely incredible, Mr. Helder. She said, it's so much bigger than I thought it was going to be. And just this moment where you know, wow, I've just showed this child the ocean for the first time. And there were so many of those. It was, it was amazing. And that would have been a, a crash course in influence <laughs> because generally, you know, there's, influencing that age group is not easy at the best of times. No. Influencing that age group without any prior experience Yes. would also not be easy and influencing that age group in an area where traditionally authority figures were not trusted not at all not trusted or particularly liked would have been Tripoli Tripoli is difficult what did you what did you learn about influence I learned that? about influence that if you want people to follow you number one you have to have structure and the days that I was disorganized were the days that were chaos and the days that I was organized um they followed suit. And number two, the second thing I learned is that human beings want structure and they want something desperately to believe in and follow. Um, they were unhappiest when I was disorganized and they were happiest when I was structured and I was ready. And the third thing I learned and completing the circle that how this has impacted every day of my life today is that people follow energy. And so those days when I got it right, as I worked it through and I had structure and I had a, a level of, um, uh, of energy that was something they had not seen before in an adult or they had not seen before in a teacher, um, 
their energy was off the chart. And it's a very easy thing to realize. People want this. This is what they want. People want to follow somebody that knows what they're talking about and believes in them and, and has a level of energy that is infectious. And since then, you've been obviously obsessing about <laughs> how we influence other people, how we influence people primarily that are different to us. And again, yeah. if you want to know more about that, check out any of Chris's materials. But I want to, today I wanted to talk to you about your, where you've taken all of that now. And I think, again, just having witnessed you, you've gone from obsessing about how people influence other people to what it feels like, you can tell me, realizing that none of that matters unless you get a grip on how you influence yourself, unless you get a grip on how you communicate with yourself in your own mind. Well, I, I, absolutely. I started talking about body language and I started talking about influence and separating yourself out from competitors and, you know, selling space, negotiation space, winning space. And, and, and I think, you know, that, that's what I was known for. I was actually, when you and I first met, um, I was a sales speaker. That's what I was known as. And um, that was great. I mean, like, and you know what, there's incredible sales skills. And, and for those people listening that have to go out there and influence people every day, these, these sales skills work. Um, my, uh, and you say obsession, my, my obsession really dialed in when I realized, hang on, there's only a small percentage of people that I feel are going away and actually doing this. And, and, you know, why is it that, you know, you can give, 10 people the same tool and why is it that two of them go away and use them and make more money and have more success and why is it that eight of them are stuck and um, that started to become my obsession uh, you know and really taking a look at this this mindset mindset side and really you know it is about the belief system that's behind people it's about the philosophy that they have that they go out there every with, with every day and it's about what's important to them and their purpose and their why and all the things that we talk about. But I became obsessed with how can I, how can I help people, help people not only just navigate the day, but, but truly come up with the most useful solution in every situation. You, you defined that, I wasn't going to get onto this right now, but it feels like the right time. You defined that theory as having useful beliefs, the <laughs> ability of a human being to have useful yeah. Useful beliefs. Well, everyone, uh, every speaker I saw as, as a speaker and, and every book that you see on the shelves and, of course, was talking about positive thinking. I was talking about positive thinking. And, 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 and so often, you know, people have said, Chris, how, how do you come up with your content? How do you come up with this? And so often I, I think about, I actually think about the stuff that doesn't work for me. <laughs> and I think, or it makes me a little bit frustrated or maybe it irritates me or, you know, and I think if it frustrates me, it probably frustrates other people too. And I never liked it when people told me to be positive. <laughs> I mean, people would say, just be positive, Chris, try to be positive. It's like, no, I don't want to be positive. And I, and I, and I found myself having this sort of reaction and, you know, and, and, you know, maybe the, you know, with the Compton thing, you know, you're not going to tell people down there to be positive. That's not, that's not going to help. Um, and I think instead it's, uh, it's useful. And I, I realized that useful was practical and useful was pragmatic. And if I have been in a rut the last week or month or year, it's not positive that's going to get me out, but it's useful. It's, it's what's the most useful thing for me to do to get from zero to two. And, and your brain goes and finds something or two to five or five to eight. And your brain goes and seeks out a pragmatic, practical solution 
So give me an example of a useful belief because there's, I've heard you talk about this before. There's a difference between a useful belief may not change a situation. Some situations are unchangeable. Correct. Out of your control. A useful belief is choosing a belief system that helps you hold the energy and focus that you need to in that situation. Can you give me an example of a useful belief? Well, I mean, I could go every day, bad things happen to good people. And, you know, again, I think a lot of my content comes out of space of pain and things that have happened. And, um, you know, I originally came up with the idea of useful belief on an airplane coming from San Francisco to Sydney when I really put the two words together and I was coming back from my father's funeral and I was on that plane and I, I write and I got this, I have this journal, Julie, that I write in and, and, um, you know, you'd never, I'd never want anyone to read, um, things that I write because, um, you know, it, it, you know, <laughs> if I ever lose these journals, I don't know what I'll do, but I was on the plane, um, I was on the plane and, and I was writing because I, I was coming back to Australia and I had 18 presentations to deliver in the next four weeks. And, and I was, I was on that plane. And I was writing, this is, you know, my mindset, this is not useful. I need a new belief system, exclamation point. And, and I can sort of uh, frustrate, right? You know, where I'm frustrated and writing. And I saw those two words together for the first time and, and useful belief. And I put them together. And here was the useful belief I came up with. Those 18 presentations, again, to our point from the beginning, I have to do it. If I have to do it, what's my useful belief? And here's what I came up with. I came up with that those audiences were, were going to give me the greatest gift they could give me. They were going to give me their time. And when somebody gives me their time, um, it's my job to give them everything I got. And again, I can't control, I can't control their response. I can just control my output. And that's all I could control. And, and that was a useful belief. But that just didn't get me through. It's become a philosophy of mine that somebody gives me their time. I, I want to give them everything I got. And that philosophy, the, the conversation that I hear, I'm hearing you have a lot at the moment is applying that philosophy of, of developing useful beliefs about a situation and pulling it out into the future. So, for example, you know, we're, there's a lot of obsession at the moment about robots and AI and going to take our jobs, revolutionize sure. our life. We're going to no longer need to get married because we're going to be able to build the perfect partner and no one's going to have a job left. There's going to be driverless cars and we're all just going to, it's going to be looking like some, you know, the inception, the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. And I've heard you talk about how one way or another, this is going to happen. A version of that reality is going to sure. come into being the most important threshold for kind of mankind in general at the moment is the quality of useful beliefs we're able to develop around it. I think this is huge, Julie. And I think, um, I think we've, only, <laughs> I think useful belief has only just begun. And, and I'm, I'm really tapping into this as an idea that we're going to have all sorts of realities and people have a reality every day, um, whether it's the person you wake up next to in the morning or whether it's technology that's, that's uh, challenging your job every day, um, whether it's, you know, whatever situation you're in. And, and I always say there's two things that stop growth. The first thing that stops growth is if we focus on complain about things we can't control. And I think we've all heard that. I don't think that's new to anybody. If you spend time yelling at the sky about the weather, it's not useful. The second thing, though, I think is even more important. And that's, that's focusing on complaining about things that you will not change. Now, if you're not going to change it, if you have to do it, we might as well have a useful belief about it. So things are happening, things we can't control. And also, if we're going to be in the industry or the situation um, that we're in, if we're not going to leave, if we're not going to change, um, 
then there's no sense focusing on all the negative side of it. It's yeah, and, and to get your brain to go to, to the right space, it's, it's what's useful. And there are, there's a lot of fear out there, I think, um, that, that is put out there by media and a lot of uh, things that are put out there. And I, I, the way I think people are not only going to survive but flourish and take things to the next level in their lives and find greater levels of happiness and find greater levels of joy is, is the future of thinking and thinking differently than, we've, than we're probably thinking right now. And really starting to think at a level of useful belief and starting to think at a level of, um, you know, what's the stuff that matters and what's the stuff that is just noise? What's the stuff that counts and what's the stuff that is literally holding us back that we're paying attention to? We're also t- traditionally, through history as mankind, we are, we are predictably rubbish at predicting the future. You know, we are, we are predictably rubbish. I did some research before, before this interview and technology has already taken over 90% of the jobs human beings used to do. In 1920s, 72% of America worked in farming, now 2%. Wow. Um, 100 years ago, millions of jobs related to horse-drawn carriages that no longer exist. The loom revolutionized um, the industrial age sure. as, as we knew it. And in each and every one of those scenarios, the the catch cry was everyone throwing up their arms going, this is going to be the death of all of our jobs. This is going to be the end of humanity as we know it. Human beings are going to be no longer necessary. There will be no role for us going forward. And it has continued to not be true every single time. Yet strangely, we haven't developed a better belief system around m- the massive changes as they come. Yeah. Uh, I've heard you, and I've heard you talk about it, Julie, that, you know, I mean, it's what the media sells to us, isn't it too? And, uh, you know, I think I've, you know, I've heard you talk about the fact that it's, uh, they sell the drama, they sell the outrage and they sell the fear and, and we're, we're buying it. And as long as we're buying it, then they're going to continue to sell it. And you know, we have to be very careful. This is exactly it. We have to be very careful who we're listening to and why we're listening to it. And are we just getting excited about the prospect of, um, you know, the uh, inevitability of robots taking our jobs is that, is, you know, and there's excitement about that, isn't there? There's, uh, there's excitement of, um, you know, in the drama and, uh, you know, what's going to happen next. And, you know, but, but I think in terms of practicality, in terms of really thinking about, you know, it's interesting. I, I, um, I was talking with this woman who had uh, come to one of my seminars and was a massive fan of useful belief. And she'd suffered anxiety and depression her whole life. And she said, um, I spoke to her three months after she had come see me at a conference and I had the most incredible conversation. She was 28 years old. She said to me, she said, Chris, she said, two things have happened. She said, I mean, first of all, you have to know uh, I've suffered anxiety, depression my whole life. She said, you got on stage and said, positive thinking doesn't matter. And uh, she said, I felt the weight of the world lift off my shoulders because my whole life everyone's told me to be positive, be positive, be positive. Um, And then she said, three months on, she said to me, I wake up every day and I think to myself two things, right? Number one, she said, I think to myself, what's the most useful thing for me to think today? And what's the most useful thing for me to do today to get through today? And she said, two things have happened as a result. Number one, she said, I've never been more productive which she's, you know, just thinking, what do I have to get done today? What's useful? And again, uh, we talk about not listening to all the noise and, you know. It's the like, difference between useful and urgent. And you know? urgent, right. Important and urgent. There you go. Well, we, what's screaming the loudest versus what's going to get you the most traction? A hundred percent. And it was interesting too, Julie. The second thing she said to me, she said, the thing I didn't expect is she said, I've never been happier in my whole life. And 
you know, I really gave that some thought. I was like, hang on, we're happiest when we're in the midst of challenge, right? We're happiest when we're doing. We're happiest as human beings when we're struggling, really, if you think about it. It's, people are probably the least happy when they're, when, when they're sitting back and, you know, talking about all the stuff that's gonna happen, might happen, could happen, instead of actually doing. And what's the most useful thing? I mean, this is this whole thing is, I mean, the multi-billion dollar industry, this search for happiness, right? Everybody's out there. This is, I want to be happy. And, and there's a lot of evidence to show right now that we're the unhappiest generation of all time. And we're the unhappiest people in the history of the world. And there's, there's something to say about that because I think throughout hi history, we had connection as a culture. We had connection as a village. We had connection as a tribe. We had connection as a group of people that, that looked after each other. And, and then I think we had struggle. We had, we, we had to go hunt. We had to go gather. We had, we had the challenge of being invaded by our opposition and by our rival. And I think, you know, if you actually looked at connection and struggle as those two words, getting connected to our life, what's useful? If this is going to be the family that I'm going to be with and I'm not going to go, if I'm going to stay then I might as well have a useful belief about it. These are my people. Let's connect. And, you know, what do we want to achieve? It's a struggle. Let's get clear about where we're at. And we all need to just decide what's going to be the most useful thing for me to do uh, to actually get the most traction. What's the stuff that counts? And what's the stuff that is just simply a lot of noise that I'm listening to? Somebody once explained it to me, which was really helpful for me at the time, that we are, that we, as primates, we are, wired we're primarily wired for cataclysmic thinking you know you know i've talked about cataclysmic oh, thinking before term. cataclysmic thinking basically just thinking the worst we're wired for it and the way that this person explained it to me was really helpful they said that as a caveman yeah if you stepped over a beautiful flower and didn't notice it no biggie yeah. doesn't make any difference but if you stepped over and on a deadly snake and didn't notice it that's a problem. That is a problem. And so your brain has been wired since the dawn of time to scan environment for danger. Not to scan it for beauty or it's joy really or what's useful or what's going to help you, but scan it for danger. Yeah. Now that's been necessary for thousands and thousands of years. However, now that wiring still exists. And as human beings, the fascination of mine at the moment, to acknowledge that that wiring exists, to step aside from it for long enough to just see it in action and then to choose to rewire it, I think is gonna be one of the frontiers yeah. going forward for the human race in terms of, as you've said, are we gonna build something better and more amazing here? Yeah. Or are we gonna to decide to you know, pack up and move to Mars and start again? <laughs> so to be able to yeah, step aside from your wiring and choose to rewire around a useful belief. I love it, I love it. And it's, to me, this idea of the future of thinking, this idea of thinking in a way that is gonna give us more joy, more beauty, and I, I love it. I mean, I, you know, because there we are, panicked, living this life, and, and you can see people every day. They're busy, they're distracted, they're on their phones, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not present with their children, they're not present with their partner, they're not present at work, they're not doing any of these things, and, and I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I mean, to, to stop, step to the side and go, hang on a second. I know we were looking for the snake, but look at that flower. I mean, that is beautiful. And, and, and we're capable of doing that now. We have the conscious awareness to do this. And, and I'm not, Jules, I don't mean to, I hope nobody thinks I'm coming from a place of, you know, that I want you just to walk around all day and, you know, see rainbows and sniff flowers. I mean, I'm a results person at the end of the day. This is really very much about 
achieving results in your life and whatever aspect of your life. And I, I'm a bit, I talk about the fact that there's only six things to human beings that are important. And um, these six things that are important to people, number one, family, and they're not in any kind of order, but it's number one, family, um, which whatever that is for you, family, that's partner, wife, husband, parents, kids, brothers, sisters, cats, whatever that works, right? And number two is, you know, is, is work and I, and work's important, you know, and I, you know, sometimes I know people get, you know, oh, work, it's just what I do, or, you know, this is just how I pay the bills. Is You know, this is how we spend a significant amount of our time. Majority of your life force. Right. And, you know, dial in. They like, you decide, what, what are we going to do? It's going to, it's a huge part of our self-esteem. And so I, let's not underestimate that one. Number three is, um, is friends. And, and I talk about real friends, right? friends we can touch, not, not just these uh, Facebook friends. Maybe, maybe we can touch some of our Facebook friends. I don't know. But I think you can poke them. <laughs> number four is health. And for some people listening, that's really what they need to focus on. Um, number five is me time. And I think me time's the lost one of the six because, you know, going back to all the way at the beginning, um, my me time is an essential part of my success. And you know, I need that me time. It's important. And number six is community. And this is another one that I think is a little bit of a lost, increasingly lost. So my point is these six things that, that you know, are the things that are important to people. And, and one of the things that I teach people around the future of thinking is accelerated focus in whatever we're doing. Um, and really having a conscious awareness that if I'm going to go do one of these six things, because what happens, Julie, is people say to themselves, oh, I've got to work late tonight. And then they feel guilty because they're not home. And when they feel guilty about not being home, um, <laughs> then they're not as effective at work. You know? and, or if you go home and you're thinking about work, or if you go to the gym and you're thinking about home and work, you know, you're not going to be as effective at the gym. And, 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 and my, I'm talking about something called accelerated focus right now, where in terms of a future thinking idea that when you go to the gym, dial in. When you're going home, turn your phone off. And be, and actually be. When you go to have some me time, go to yoga class and just be, you know, because um, increasingly that me time is so important, Julia. It's, it's um, you know, we came into the world, we're going to, we're going to, we're gonna, we came into the world alone, we're going to leave alone. And, uh, and I think, um, you know, you can't make people love you. I think that, uh, that cornerstone of uh, making sure you're good with yourself is still number one. I want to, I want to go back just a little bit to family. Just want to touch Let's, on family for right, a second. Cool. The concept of family, guilt, um, guilt and shame, and and accelerated focus. I I've heard you speak about your mom a number of times. Oh, I know right. I don't think you've ever told the story publicly on stage. I'm about to ask you to tell it now. Um, and I remember you telling me about a time when your mum made a decision. Yeah. To do something that could have resulted in shame, could have resulted in guilt, that your father was was pretty against at the time, and the legacy of that accelerated focus that she showed, the legacy of the clear, useful belief and choice that she made in that moment. Can you can you tell that story? Yeah, of course. Uh, I uh, it was it. Look, it, it changed her life completely, and. Um, in 1975, which I was five years old. Now, that, that dates me fiercely, Julie. Uh, but in 1975, I was five. My brother was two. And I've had a five-year-old and a two-year-old. My, my boys are teenagers now. But I've had, um, at one point, had uh, small children. 
1975, uh, Saigon fell to the Viet Cong. And my mom in 1975, who was a nurse her whole life, um, my mom made a decision to go to Saigon. She was passionate about nursing, passionate about babies. And she made a decision to join something called Operation Babylift. Operation Babylift was a incredible uh, organization and it was an incredible thing that saved the lives of 2,700 uh, orphan babies and brought them to safe havens such as Australia and the United States. And otherwise, these, these orphans uh, would have most likely been killed by the Viet Cong. Now, this was an, uh, an amazing group of people and there's tons on, there's tons on YouTube and you can, you know, my mom ended up, uh, you know, and... Cause she know, arrived the day that, that it fell. Well, she was there the week that it fell, and the bottom line is they were loading these babies in boxes. Now, uh, I suppose to your point about accelerated focus, everybody told my mom not to go. Um, now, my my dad actually was fairly supportive. It was actually he was probably one of the most supportive, and I I've laughed about this, Julie, because everyone else had told her not to go, and um, I mean I've 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 thought to, I've had a five year old and a two year old. I've thought to myself if my wife came to me and said to me, you know, Chris. Um, I know we have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. I would like to go to a war-torn country and rescue orphan babies. Um, I so often have wondered what my answer would have been I, I, or how that conversation would have gone down. Because, uh, Julie, I can only imagine my father was one of two things. He was either uh, the most understanding husband in the history of the world, or, and this is entirely possible. I think maybe he thought, ah, this is a chance to get rid of her. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure. But um, look, everyone told her not to go, but she was passionate and adamant to go. And I pulled her up when I was a teenager and I said, how could you have done this? How could you have gone there? Because this was dangerous. And Julia was dangerous because um, um, now they smuggled money into Vietnam uh, for the orphanage. Uh, but even on the way out, my mom was due to be on the first jet to leave Saigon and they were leaving they were leaving they were literally had, they had babies in boxes they were, they were loading babies in cardboard uh, boxes 200 plus babies in cardboard boxes uh, and nurses just changing nappies and you can because the can, orphanages were getting bombed the, and look yeah. this is it they're getting these babies out and they're not waiting for permission and they are literally just taken off and um, my mom was due to be on the first jet and uh, the plane the first jet blew up and it killed 220 orphan babies and volunteers. And my mom was due to be on that plane. And it's the earliest memory I have of my family and my father is that my father was frantically in, in panic on the phone in a pre-internet world to find out whether or not his wife had been on, my mother had been on this, this plane. And she wasn't. She was on the second plane. And, you know, look, I, I asked my mom, I said, what, well, I was a teenager and I put it on her. I said, I said, how could, how could you have done this? You know, I was five, my, brother was too you almost left us without a mom and and I, I did I had a little go at her I did and um and she sat me down and we talked and I said didn't you feel guilty and of course guilt as you know is one of my things I want to <laughs> I want to help people eliminate guilt from their from their lives and you know I think guilt holds people back so much but I said didn't you feel guilty about this she sat me down and she told me a story she said um I did feel guilty but she said um she said, this was my purpose. And she said, this was something that I wanted to do for myself. And it was something I needed to do for myself. And she said, everyone told me not to go. Family told her not to go. Friends told her not to go. And I said, did you at any point feel like, you know, you felt bad and you weren't going to go? And she told me a story about how she was on a plane from Manila to Saigon. 
on the way in. And she realized, I think, the brevity of the situation. And, and there she was, and she said she had a panic attack. She began to cry. And she was on the plane in the middle of the night. And she all of a sudden, I think, became overwhelmed with the emotion. And she tells me the story. And the way she tells it, a male flight attendant walked up to her and said, Ma'am, are you okay? And she said, uh, she said, no, I don't think I am. And she said, I think I've made a huge mistake. And she was crying. And as she tells the story, he knelt down and got on a knee and grabbed her hand and said, ma'am, I want you just to take a moment and I want you to tell me how you got started in this in the first place. Tell me about why you're doing this. And she did. And when she tells the story, she said she talked for 10 minutes about how so few people would have a chance to do something so amazing and to, to make a difference and, and you know what a beautiful thing it was and how, how passionate she was about nursing, how passionate she was about babies. And she realized the man had never let go of her hand and was squeezing tightly and looked at her and just said, you're going to be just fine. And, you know, as my mom said, purpose eliminates guilt. When you have purpose about what you're doing, the things that we feel guilty about in everyday life are less important. I heard um, a woman I admire very much. Um, she, her, her name is Emma Isaacs. She runs Business Chicks Network, probably know, the, the world's largest network for business women. And I heard her interviewed recently. And she had missed, she's got five children, incredibly, five children. And she had missed her, her youngest daughter's first birthday. And she put a post on Facebook because she had to be somewhere else. It's a global business. And she put a post and she said, I've been upset this morning. I've been on the verge of tears all morning because I'm missing my daughter's first birthday. I feel sad. However, I do not feel guilty. Wow. There is a difference between sadness and guilt. And you can feel sadness without feeling guilty. Guilty is useless. Guilty helps no one. But sadness you can feel. And then either do something different or have accelerated focus. She said, I'm going to have accelerated focus when I'm here. Mm. Focus when I'm here. And I'm going to go home and I'm going to put her, give her the most kick-ass birthday party she's ever had in her life. That's but feeling so cool. guilty in between doesn't help anybody. You know, that is so cool. I love that story. I love that story, Julian. And, you know, for someone like Emma who's done so much for so many people and just is an incredible beacon of energy and just, you know... It, you can't do great things in the world and be perfect. It, it doesn't work like that. And, you know, you can't, you can't have it all. And I say that in the way that you can't have it all and that you can't have everything be perfect. And one of the, my big things is perfection truly, truly gets in the way of, 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 of our ability to have a, a fantastic life. And we need to stop trying to be perfect. It's not perfect. Sometimes we have to work. And I love that. She felt sad. And in my book, I talk about 10 seconds of guilt, move on. And, and that would apply. You can feel sad and then you go, I'm also feeling guilty and I'm not going to. So um, it is funny. Julie, my mother, I grew up, um, <laughs> my mother taught me 10 seconds of guilt, move on as a child. And, you know, I think... Um, you know, when you're raised by strong women, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. And and you know, it's, it's ten seconds to go move on. I would walk in. I would walk in after bombing a math test, and she, we'd talk it through. What 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 didn't go well? And she'd say, ten seconds of guilt, move on. And you know, I just you know, I love that you can feel sad. You can, but at the same time, don't feel guilty. Ten seconds. All right, feel it. I actually was talking about that, Julie, and I had this woman in the audience. She raised her hand. She said, um, <laughs> she said, she said, Chris. She said. Um, 
I, I was raised Irish Catholic. She said, I'm going to need longer than 10 seconds. I, I said, how long are you going to need? She said, like seven minutes. I said, done. Seven minutes of guilt. Uh, move on. But, and also, you know, actively own your choice. Whether you would make that it. same choice tomorrow, knowing what you know now, whether you would never make that same choice again, you made it. Own it. Own it now. Make the most of the opportunity you've created in this moment because you've made your choice. You may as well, and using your language, you may as well have a useful belief about the choice that you have made. That's it. And then educate your choice differently. That's next it. Next time. Now, I want to talk about, let's get a bit a bit sciencey, a bit, a bit geeky about this stuff. So just bring it down into, bring it down to solid science. A big part of useful belief is a focus on the reticular activating system of our brains. Sure. I just think it's important to understand the power of the reticular activating system because it basically goes back to what I was saying about caveman days and whether you notice flowers or you notice snakes. So I think understanding this is really important to developing useful beliefs. Can you talk through that system and how it works? This is, oh, I believe, Julie, the most important part of our brain when it comes to success and seeing what we need to see to be successful. So, I mean, this is the filter. It's the filter that filters the millions of pieces of information that we get every day. And, you know, I think in my book, Useful Belief, I mean, I talk about it as, as the red Toyota theory. And it's like, if, um, if, you, if you drove in here today and I say to you, did you see, did you see a red Toyota? Um, of course, the answer is no. Um, unless, of course, you're looking to buy a red Toyota. And in that case, then... If you're looking to buy a red Toyota, guess what? They're everywhere, man. Like everywhere. You just see, and whatever car you're looking to buy, um, it's they're just popping. They're everywhere. Um, and this is the reticular activating system. This is the filter. Um, it filters the millions of pieces of information we get every day. So now why is this important? Because if I have a useful belief, and my useful belief is this is the best time ever in the history of the world to be alive. And I think that to myself, that's my belief system, then my reticular activating system will go find beautiful things. So you're actively training your subconscious mind Correct. on what to look for and at a millisecond by millisecond basis. And it's literally just a conscious decision to say there's beauty in the world. And anybody listening to this right now could go, I believe this is a beautiful time to be alive, beautiful space to be in. And you could walk outside and no matter which environment they're in, they'll walk outside right now and see something beautiful. It's, you know, and by the same token, if you believe these are tough times, these are some tough times, then, you know, and of course, let's go back to your media, uh, drama, outrage, and fear, which I love. Um, as soon as you believe that these are dangerous times, these are scary times, these are turbulent times, your brain's going to go seek out the information to support that. So I'll go this far, Julie. Uh, I've spoken with you know, on stage for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people over 17 years. And I've done over 2,300 presentations. And I would say this, in all these audiences, the thing that separates out the most successful people in the world from the average is the most successful people in the world see opportunities that other people can't see. That's it, or don't see. Right, the other the successful people are out there right now going, there's opportunities everywhere. And if I say, in your business right now, what are the opportunities that are everywhere? Your brain has to go find opportunities. It starts to think, well, maybe we could do this or maybe we could do that. If you believe it's a tough times, you shut down. Your brain stops looking. Um, so this is critical, especially today. The future of thinking is about managing and controlling your reticular activating system. 
And so how do you notice? I, I mean, I know this stuff. I've heard you talk about this stuff. I've read books on this stuff. And yet still, yep. you'll get halfway through a day. I'll get halfway through a day. I know. And you're just... And you'll have a moment of sudden clarity, just that millisecond of just being able to separate out from your own thoughts for a second and go, oh my God, like that loop, that loop's been on all day. Yeah. That unhelpful, unuseful loop, mental loop, mental story has been sure. playing over and over again all day. What's the key to catching it fast and stopping it? I think anytime you feel yourself, you know, drift into a place of unhappiness or drift into a place of negativity or, you know, drift into anger and you know you know i i i, I suppose like those type of emotions there were sadness and loss and and, and i think anytime you drift into these emotions i think it, it's it's training yourself to catch yourself like whoa, whoa 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 hang on is it when you feel just had an idea is it is it when you feel your energy you yeah, sometimes sure. we just feel our energy kind of go like yeah. someone just pulled the plug look it, i mean the classic example for me um, I was raised like um, I'm 48 years old. I was born in 1969. I was raised very much through my teenage years in the 1980s. And I had a, a lot of mentors, a lot of role models, I suppose, um, through the 80s and then through the working environments of the 90s in that time frame who were very uh, aggressive people. And, you know, it's, I, had a, I had a fairly aggressive father. I had a... a, a played American football, had very aggressive, angry coaches. I played college football. I had aggressive, angry coaches. The first bosses that I had in the 90s dealt with adversity in an aggressive, angry manner. And the models that I grew up with to the time I was 30 years old that were male showed me that when adversity happens that your response should be aggressive and it should be a, you know... Uh, an anger response and that's how you get things done and you know it, it, as you sit back and look at it, it's like now I try to catch myself oh, I catch myself because I'm in a situation I go I'm falling into a pattern right now and I go that's not where I want to be that's not and, and it's as simple as to go I can feel myself reacting to a situation and it's as simple as this for anyone who's listening you feel yourself fall into your default situation which you know is not useful and you react and you go oh and you go hang on whoa time out and literally just say to yourself, this event has happened. This reality has happened. I am now filtering for all the things that are wrong. I'm about to bring 17 other things that are wrong into the conversation, which have nothing to do with the actual situation that I'm actually dealing with. But now I'm going to pile on all sorts of other things. Cause, and then you go, this is not useful. Stop. Stop. And really recollect yourself and ask yourself three words. Is this useful? And then three more. What is useful? And we start to move to a place where we can hopefully, you know, get ourselves out of that. Now, again, for other people, you know, those emotions could be anything. They could be, you know, they can be sadness and loss. And we can sit back and remember people. And next thing you know, and I think it's really, I want to make a really important distinction here. Uh, grief. Grief for me is useful. I, I, I think... Um, you know, I just, uh, I buried my father, I buried my stepfather, I buried my father-in-law. All three men were, were, were huge, you know, huge impact people in my life. And, and you can feel sadness and loss. And I, you know, and I, I guess, you know, of course, what do people talk to you about when, they're, when you're feeling sad? They tell, you to, they tell you to be positive. And, you know, that doesn't help. 
because <laughs> you don't want to be positive. And I think, I think to be in a place where you go, hang on, what's, you know, for me to, to sit back and, and instead say, you know, grief is useful. Let me, let me grieve for a bit. And, and then at what point, I suppose, for the people listening, there may be people right now listening that they've been going through grief and you go, this isn't useful anymore. I'm, I, I'm, I'm out on this. This isn't helping me anymore. I've grieved long enough. I've, I, I, I've let this hurt me and affect me long enough. So I, so I think being sad's okay. I think being mad's okay. And I think those things are totally useful for people who are listening. And, and the question really becomes at what point is it not? And at what point do we move forward? I've actually, you know, I've actually used that. I've used, yeah. just if it helps anyone with context, I've used, a, used it in an argument with my husband. Yeah. Recently, in fact, actually yesterday, where you get halfway through the argument and she said, you feel yourself fall into a default, a default positioning, you know, blaming a bunch of unuseful behaviors. And I've actually, even though I can't think of anything better to do in that moment because you're so in it, yeah. I've actually stopped and said, you know what, there's, there's a bunch of things that I want to say right now that, I'm, that I was on the verge of saying. Yeah. And none of them are useful. And I just want to, I just want to take some time out because I want to come back when I have something useful to contribute to this conversation to try and get us to a decent place. And you don't even have to know what else you want to say. No. But you can, if you say that to somebody, yeah. do you know what? I want to be useful and I don't think I will be if I keep talking. I want to, t- can I have a time out? That person, by and large, will I give you that time, be grateful that you took it and appreciate your intention mm. to be useful rather than your intention to wound or to hurt or to score points or whatever it is for all of us can be our default positionings. And we all have those default positions. Everyone listening, whether it's engaging in conflict or whether it's becoming aggressive or whether it's running out the door and slamming the door on the way out, everyone's got their default behaviors. Let's, let's flip it. Sure. I want to flip it for a second. So you've got useful beliefs going forwards. How do you handle what's going to happen in the future for, for mankind? How do, you, how do you have a useful belief about the current economy? How can you, all these future focused things, can you use it? Can you use it for the past? Can you relook at something that has maybe had a significant impact on your life, yeah. on who you are, on how you behave and develop a useful belief about it 20 years later? Is that possible? Well, I think I'm a big believer in timeline. Um, and I think we can look at the past, we can look at where we are today and what we look at in the future. And, and I think, you know, just in terms of thinking about application, obviously useful belief is a very present-minded idea, right? And so it's very much about being present, being mindful. What am I feeling? What am I about to do? Is this useful? Is this what's income-producing? What's not income-producing? So I'm very thinking about the right now. Um, huge application back into the past. The past, obviously, we all have a reality. Um, we've all made mistakes. We've all done things. We've all had things happen to us. And we've all had relationships end. Uh, people have passed on. Um, jobs didn't work out. Businesses didn't work out. Um, there are a lot of things that happen in all of our lives. People let us down and our expectations were not met. Um, I sort of look at that and here's a useful belief, Julie, to get through the past into now because there's only two time zones we can control, the now and into the future. And I think there's outside of the learning that took place, I think if we're dwelling on things in the past, it's probably not useful. So in terms of time, 
I would say this, every single thing in our lives either happened for a reason or, or they were part of our journey, however you want to think of it. They were part of your journey, which led you into this room today. And this room today is the exact room we're supposed to be in to launch the rest of our life. And, and you know, it's all those things that happened, they, 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 hap they were supposed to happen or at least every single thing led to the next thing and to where I'm actually sitting in this room today and now ready to launch the time zone that I have control over. Now, in terms of the future, I think very much so. It's, um, you know, even if I, you know, even if I said, you know, just on the past while I finish off on that in my head, um, one of my favorite useful beliefs is we had the parents we were supposed to have. And, you know, we think about that. It's, is it true? I, I don't know if it's true. Um, and I think sometimes truth is, you know, truth is things we were taught and truth is, uh, you know, it, it just is. There are parents. We can't change it. And you know what? If you can't change it, there might as well be useful belief about it. So what did we learn to do? What did we learn not to do? And, you know, all those things across along the way. Tony Robbins, I know you and I have have different feelings about Tony Robbins, but, but take opinion out of it. I heard him say, which I just thought was brilliant, that if you are... He was in spe specifically referencing parents. Yes. He said, if you are going to blame, blame effectively. <laughs> so if you're going to blame your parents for everything bad that, that may have happened, then blame effectively. And that's basically have a useful belief, which is then you've also, you don't get to choose. You're going to blame them. Blame them for everything good that happened. Blame them for everything that you learned. That's exactly Blame it. them for everything that it gave you, the tenacity, the resilience, the skills, the tools, the, the impetus or enthusiasm. Yeah. If you're going to blame, if that's your choice, yeah. then blame effectively. And that is literally just have a useful belief about what happened. It's, it's, I love it. I love it. Blame effectively. And I think that's, I think so often it's so easy for people to, to focus on that negative side. And, um, yeah, it was interesting, Julie, I, I you know, even, you know, we, we think about this time frame. So all the things that have happened was to get us here and then how do we use it in the future? Um, I'm a big believer. I like a little time travel. I don't mind a little time travel. And, I, and, and you know, to sit back and say, Julie, um, I want you to imagine. So I guess we're, let's call it that we're roughly four months away from the end of the year. And, and even just to do little four-month time travels and, or 12-month time travels and, and get to a place where I say, you know, Julie, four months from right now for you to walk up to me on New Year's Eve and say, um, I just had the best four months of my life. Right. Or I, I just had the professionally the most dynamic, right, thought provoking four months of my life or for your body to say, I've just had the best physical four months of my life or, you know, and, and, you know, time traveling to New Eve and saying this is this for you to do that, for you to walk up to me and say, I just had the best period of time in my life or, uh, you know, what did you what did you start doing and stop doing, you know, for you to actually achieve Tell me, what, what actions did you take? What did you start to believe in? Um, I was, uh, when I was at university, I had a friend called Scott. And there were two things I liked about Scott. No, I liked more than that. But the, he had a big car, and uh, he always liked to drive. So we always had a designated driver at university, and Scott was out. What, he had this big car. One day I got in this big car, and the oil light was on in his car. And I said to Scott, I said, the oil light's on in your car. I said, let's go put some oil in your car. And he looked at me. He goes, no, I'll do it later. And next time I got in Scott's car, I looked at the dashboard, and the oil light was still on. The, and I said, Scott, 
the oil lights on, man. Let's go. I said, I'll show you how to do it, man. Let's go put some oil in your car. And he goes, no, 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 it's all right. I'll do it later. And the next time I got in Scott's car, <laughs> on the dashboard, there was a business card situated. And I said to Scott, I said, Scott, why, why is there a business card on your dashboard? And he looked at me and he said, I got sick of looking at the oil light. And the older I get, the more I like this story. And I'll tell you why. Because I think, I think every single person has an oil light that stares at them every day. And it tells you exactly what you're supposed to start doing and stop doing. You know what you're supposed to start doing and stop doing. It's, it's just a whole lot easier to put a business card over the top of it and not look. Um, it's just a whole lot easier to just not do it. And unfortunately, just like Scott's car, if we don't take action on the things we're supposed to take action on, we probably end up a little bit broken down and a little bit on the side of the road. So, uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, that's the future. I would say that's it. You know, it's being clear and ask yourself what you're supposed to start doing and stop doing. But get, get some clarity and some short space about what you want to do. Talk to me about the mind-body loop. I heard you mention that this morning and it was, it was fascinating. Yeah, um, I, I love the mind-body loop, Julie. I think the mind-body loop is, is just such a huge part of the performance and outcome that we achieve every day. Um, what the mind harbors, the body manifests. That's what it is. What the mind harbors, the body manifests. So again, what, when we have a useful belief about our brain and, and what's going on with our thoughts, that, that manifests in terms of our physicality. Um, we move differently. There's a great study done by Albert Rabian out of UCLA, and he discovered that only 7% of our communication is words. And of course, that's nothing. Um, <laughs> more than five times more powerful is the tone with which we speak, which you know every time if you walk into a retail situation and somebody looks at you and says, uh, sorry, can I help you? Can I help you? Right? <laughs> and you know they're not there to help you at all. But think about that. Five times more powerful is the tone with which we speak. But 55%, the most powerful form of our communication is our body language. And how we move and how we communicate, how we impact people. And it's also about how we impact ourselves. Um, so I'm a really, I'm a huge believer in, in, in these things, in posture, be conscious of how you're sitting, be conscious of how you're moving, of eye contact, be conscious of looking at people and being present and connected in a world of distraction, um, smiling, uh, when, you know, again, with the mind harbors, the body manifests. And I know it's silly to say smile, like you'd go, what is this like kindergarten? But the reality is this, every communication study says the same thing that when you smile at someone, it instantaneously makes them feel good about them but the smile is the smile is the result of the of the belief otherwise it's because we can pick up on a forced smile you know we we know the difference between a forced smile and a real smile and so if you have a belief system that you're working walking into work today and it's i don't know a a room full of idiots and you don't know why you took this job in the first place your smile is going to look and feel very different than if you walk in with a useful belief this is where i'm going to spend my day today and I'm going to make the most of every single opportunity and I'm going to have some great connections with the people around me. It's going to be a very different smile. Very different smile. And a very different smile that drives from one of my favorite useful belief words, which is gratitude. And that's where we sort of started thinking about gratitude. Um, the question that I usually finish with, is, which is always hilarious when I'm talking to somebody who gets on stages as much as you do. If I could, if I could give you a stage... And I could give you a microphone. Yeah. And in front of you, I would put every single person on this planet that you would want to influence. What's the one thing that you'd want them to know if you could only have them leave that room with one thing? 
I really, and, and without beating the drum, I, I, I have to say, I have so many different ideas that those, those journals that I tell you about, I mean, I, I, and do you know what? So many of those ideas don't work. <laughs> so many of those ideas I go, and let's just, that's not it. No, next, next. And, you know, sometimes people think, I think you come up with a couple of good ideas and, you know, it's, it's such a process of a thousand things I throw away for one thing that I would keep. And I have to say the thing I'm most proud of is this idea of useful belief. I, I, it's the thing I would love to have be my legacy and have people walk away and say, is this useful? What's the most useful thing for me to do? Don't get negative. Ask yourself what's useful. It's pragmatic. It's practical. And it's better than positive thinking. And if everybody walked away and... Uh, who knows, maybe somebody will find the, find the book Useful Belief in 500 years and say, this is interesting and, you know, have it be a philosophy. But it's, um, it really works as a philosophy. And I, I'd love people to, to, to have that and be able to use it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for finding a, a crazy, quiet, and in some cases not so quiet corner of this building to I sit with me. I think we've done well. I think we've done well to find a quiet corner in this building. We have so. done very well. There are surrounded by children and conference attendees, but we've somehow managed to pull it off. Thank you. Julie, it's time. always incredible to spend time with you, and uh, you know, well done. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.